Well, please turn your Bibles to Exodus 15. Let's turn there, just, uh, just echoing what Ben said earlier, uh, especially think about next, uh, next week, some exciting things. Encourage you to uh, come to, his, uh, to, to the lunch after church, talking about uh, opportunities for evangelism and how we can incorporate that in our, our lives. Encourage you to uh, come out tomorrow or next uh, Sunday evening at five to get to know Blake and Kristen, talk to them about their their ministry plans and affirm those, and then uh, encourage you to come out for our Thanksgiving celebration, kind of a dessert fellowship and the testimonies. All those are, are things I'm looking forward to next week, and encourage you to come and be a part of those things as well. Well, we're here in Exodus 15. And remember last week the Lord uh, prepared his people for worship, was, was helping them become worshipers as they understood his character and his work in their lives. And, and we talked about worship as we came and saw the response of worship in chapter 15. And that brings us to verse 22. And if you are able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, and we're going to read a little bit of a longer portion if you need to sit down. Feel free to do so. That's, that's fine. It doesn't mean you don't love the Lord, okay? We know. So, so feel free to, to sit down if you need to. Uh, beginning in verse 22 of Exodus 15. Remember, the, the people have just been delivered from the Egyptians and responded in praise. And it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. They came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently... Listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Verse 1 of chapter 16, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and 
in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Then we come, and the passage began to describe the instructions for the Sabbath day, that they're to take Sabbath day as a day of rest, and to gather more on the the sixth day. But they didn't listen. Come down to verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah, which probably doesn't help you very much. It's about two liters. Come to verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And then Moses cries out to God, and God responds. He says in verse 5, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. They called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word 
this morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that we are recipients of grace. We want to respond in worship. We recognize that, that all that we have is from you and all things that you give us are good things, ultimately, for your glory. Help us to respond in worship in our lives and all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about worship and how God has designed us for worship and how he prepares us for worship and how we think about his character and as we think about his character and his acts in our lives, the response should be one of worship. And what we understand as we look at Scripture is that contentment is an essential aspect of worship. In fact, I want to kind of do a little bit of a, a diagram here. Uh, this is not my strength, so kind of bear with me here, but, but kind of this will help perhaps those of you who are more uh, visually based in your learning to think about how this process works that God has designed us for. You begin with this idea. First of all, in our circumstances, we look to God. We look to God. And so in a good situation, in a bad situation, what do we do? We, we look to God. We're, we're in a situation in which we're not sure how it's going to work out. There's some difficulty. We're living in a fallen world. And, and what do we do? We, we look to God. We, we trust Him. And then what happens? As we look to God, we find joy. We find in God all that we need. And that doesn't mean that He necessarily takes us out of a bad circumstance. It doesn't mean that he meets our needs perhaps the way that we would have thought that he would. But what it means is when you and I are in a circumstance and we look to God, the response is is joy. We find joy in him because he, he has all good things within him. There's nothing about him that is not pleasing and worthy of, of joy. And so we, we look to God in a circumstance, and what happens? We find joy. And then whenever we find joy in his character and who he is and his attributes and how he acts, the response is worship. So we're in a circumstance, we look to God, we find joy, we worship. That's the process that God has designed for us in all things. Now, how does that process get perverted? Well, it begins with me, instead of looking to God, looking at myself. And that's a picture of a little frog looking in the mirror. I told you this isn't my strength, but that is one cute frog. And so I went with it, okay? We look to self. We say, okay, uh, instead of saying God is, is the one to whom I'm looking, I'm, I'm, instead of God being the, the, the one by which I orient all other things, I say, so God is the center of the universe. And if I look to God, I say, okay, all things are about him and his glory. Instead, what I do is I, I look to self. And when I look to self and make myself the, the center of my universe, what do I find? I don't find joy. I find lack. Because if I'm the center of the universe, there are some things that that don't quite gel with that, right? There's sometimes things that I don't want to happen that happen. There are things that I should have if I'm the center of the universe that I don't. There are things that I desire that don't come about, and so there's lack. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. So if I look to self, instead of looking to God, I look at self, look to myself, and instead of finding joy, I find lack, and the result then is complaint, right? I complain. This universe isn't the way that it's supposed to be. It's about me. 
look to myself for my joy. I don't find it. There are things missing, and so I complain. What, what does complain mean? Complain doesn't mean just to look at the world and say there are things wrong with it because that's, that's biblical. We look at the world around us and we, we recognize we live in a world that's, that's fallen, so that's not what we mean when we say complain. But complain is to express discontentment. Complaining comes from a, a heart attitude that is, that is discontent with the world as it is. It's a, a refusal to find joy in a circumstance. And we complain all the time, right? It's an emotional reaction or a rejection of wherever we find ourselves. And so uh, complaining is the end of a process that instead of ending in worship, ends in, in disgruntlement and, and grumbling. So I'm supposed to look to God, find joy in worship, and instead what happens, it's complaining is the end of another process. I look at myself, I find lack, and I complain. And we do this all the time, and it begins when we're very young, right? Think about Whitney and myself whenever we were parents of very young children. Our children at an early age, we didn't, we didn't have to train them to complain. They kind of naturally took on complaining themselves, right? There would be various circumstances where they would ex- express their displeasure with how the world was, and so they, you know, they would want food and not that food, a different type of food, and they would want a toy and not that toy, the toy that their sibling would have, and, and just this, this attitude of complaining, this expression of discontentment was something that, just quite frankly, we got used to. We got used to. It became kind of a, a pattern in our home, child looks at the world around them, center of their own world, and says, boy, I don't like how things are. I want this, I want this. It's just kind of this this whining sound, right? And we got used to it. In fact, I'd come home, and I'd I'd hear the kids talking to Whitney, and I'd say, Whitney, do you you hear that whining? And she would say, I do not. I have mom ears on right now. And you know, and, and then I'd be home for a couple hours, and it, I'd, I'd lose my sense of it as well. And, you know, a kid would come up, I want, okay, just here, just take it, you know, whatever. I got used to it. And we came, we came convicted of this in, in our, our parenting, and, and we came up with a rule, kind of a very simple rule that I think was very effective. We said, okay, we need to train our ears to hear this because we do not want to create in our children a heart of, of discontentment that believes that they can complain about the world around them and, and things will go well for them. And so we made a very simple rule. We said, hey, if you complain or whine to get something, you don't get it. Whatever it is, even if I was like on my way to give you this bowl of ice cream and I hear you whining about how you want ice cream, you know, that's just all the more for daddy because you're not getting it, okay? Whatever you complain to get whatever you want, you don't get it. And what happened in our home is we began to train ourselves again to, to hearing complaining, to hearing whining, to recognizing it in our, 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 our lives, And what I would suggest to you this morning is that you and I need to train ourselves again to listen to whining and complaining in our own lives. What I would suggest to you is that we have become very immune to to whining, complaining voices 
coming from, from ourselves. We don't even recognize that we do it. And yet, if, you're, if you have some of the same tendencies that I do, you are tempted to complain all the time about all sorts of things. About your job. My, my boss isn't the boss that I kind of feel like I deserve. My coworkers don't think, do the things that I think my coworkers should do. And, and I'm upset about that my compensation isn't what my compensation should be. And my workload isn't what my workload should be. And let me tell you about this project that, you know, this guy messed up. Because you know what he does? He messes things up. That's what that guy does. We all know that guy. And then we complain about our our, um, our, our family and my, you know, my parents just don't understand me. And let me tell you about how terrible they are as parents. And, and, let, and if you're an adult, let me tell you about how terrible my parents were when I was a kid. They were terrible then. And, and let me tell you about how terrible my siblings are or were. And let me tell you about my spouse. And I wish my spouse were different. And I wish my, my uh, children would do different things. And then we talk about are the, the weather. Boy, I wish the weather was different because the weather isn't what I'd like the weather to be. And let me tell you about my physical appearance. I'm like complain about my physical appearance. I'm too tall. I'm too short. My feet are too big. My feet are too small. My hair doesn't wave the way that I would like it to wave. Um, my, my elbow is kind of shaped funny. We complain about, I heard one time someone complain about the government. Can you believe it? <laughs> we complain all the time. Why? Because our hearts are discontent. Our inability, our inability to distinguish between recognizing that we live in a fallen world and complaining about where God has placed us, our inability to even see that those things are different reveals a great deal about how much this, this sin of complaining has taken root in our lives. Paul would tell the people of Philippi in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In Jude 16, Jude, as he's talking about false teachers, about people who've rejected the gospel, what would he say about one of their characteristics? He would say they're, they're grumblers, they're malcontents. They're following their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. One of the characteristics of a false teacher, of someone who has rejected the gospel, is that they are a grumbler. They are a complainer. They are a malcontent. Grumbling is setting yourself up against the glory of God. Uh, grumbling is setting yourself up against the, the glory that Jesus Christ should have ascribed to him. Grumbling is a, a cold dash of water on the flame of worship. And it's something that should have no part in the life of a believer. It discourages rather than promotes praise. We find ourselves in a situation, even a bad situation. We acknowledge that it's bad, but we're supposed to look to God and find fulfillment and respond in worship. And instead, what do we do? We look to ourselves, we find lack, and we say, this is not right. I'm complaining, I'm discontent. Here's kind of the main thing that I want you to, to think about with me as we look at, at this passage, complaining is an attack on the gospel message. 
Complaining is an attack on the gospel message because we are saying that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for my provision and joy. Complaining is an attack on the gospel message because it is saying that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for my provision and joy. So let's, let's look at four statements together here. And the first statement is a very large, overreaching statement that kind of helps us orient ourselves to the entire passage. The first statement is this. When we complain, when we complain, we are attacking not just circumstances or other people, but God himself. And this, I think, for many of us, might be a little bit of a, a paradigm shift. When we complain, we are attacking not just circumstances or other people, but God himself. And perhaps the people of Israel don't recognize this. And you look at this, this passage as a whole, but this truth comes out. In fact, think about the context. You go back a few chapters to Exodus 13, and what do we see about this process by which the people are being led? Exodus 13 tells us that the, the Lord is going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. In other words, where the people are led, and we looked at this last week, where the people are led is not accidental. It's not some vague force that's causing them to be in different places. God himself is putting them in various circumstances. And in the first two, two sections here, kind of at the end of 15 and throughout the story in chapter 16, you see, it's, you see it's God testing them. God God is doing this. This is not some random force that brings them there. It's not fate or some sort of ethereal um, you know, uh, chance that causes this to happen. This is, this is God's direction. The people aren't just complaining about some vague circumstance. They're, they're complaining against God who's led them there, grumbling against him. You go into chapter 16, we'll come back to 16, but you look at 16 and, and Moses says something very instructive to the people that perhaps they didn't grasp intuitively. He says, look, um, you're upset at me and Aaron, but uh, who are we? We're just two guys. Who, who are we? We're just two guys. It's against the Lord. Your grumble is against the Lord. Verse 8 of 16, it says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, what this principle means is you and I need to be very, very careful. Because we may think when we find ourselves in a situation that we don't like, and we say something negative about it, we may think that it's just kind of this this vague statement kind of delivered in general. Like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm upset, I'm kind of complaining about the weather, but, you know, I'm not complaining against God. Or I'm complaining against a, a political structure. I'm complaining against my parents. I'm, I think I'm just kind of complaining against people or something. But what we have to understand is that th these complaints, ultimately, if they come from a heart of discontentment, are against God. Again, think about what grumbling means. Grumbling means to express a heart attitude of discontentment. It's, it's rebelling against where God has placed you. 
It's refusing to find joy in a circumstance. It's, it's being placed in a place and saying, okay, I'm, I'm here, and I, I absolutely refuse to find joy here. I'm going to rebel against the very fact that I'm here, and I'm going to express a heart that says I'm, I'm discontent with this. One person put it this way. It's, it's looking at the story that God has written for your life and saying, no, I'm going to rewrite that. And unless it's rewritten the way that I want it rewritten, I'm not, I'm not going to find joy here. Let me give you some examples where we might, may think that we're attacking people, but ultimately we're attacking God. Maybe you're a young person and you're, you're upset about your parents. So you say some things about your parents. You know, my parents aren't fair. It's not right that I have to endure these terrible, terrible human beings. I call mom and dad. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says you, you submit. You obey. Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Do this, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Colossians 3, 20, children, obey your parents in everything. This, this pleases the Lord. Proverbs 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Proverbs 23, 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Proverbs 30, 17, Proverbs 30, 17 is a proverb my mother quoted to me that I double-checked just to make sure it was in the scripture when I was a young person because it seemed kind of terrifying to me. Proverbs 30, 17 says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. It's there. What is it saying? It's saying, look, this is the, the, the person who refuses to respond rightly to their parents' instruction is a person who's going to have a very difficult life and ultimately a very difficult eternity because grumbling against your parents is not grumbling against them ultimately but against the Lord. Grumbling against our circumstances is ultimately grumbling against the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, hey, don't be anxious this is in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When we complain, we're not just attacking circumstances of other people, but God himself. It's true of the government. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's true of church leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, the writer of Hebrews says in 13.7, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, this principle doesn't mean you have to say, I, I love being in this circumstance. That leader is awesome. They have no flaws. That's not what this, this means. What it means is that I look at my heart attitude, and while I rightly might recognize that a situation is, is not how God might intend it to be, there's joy as I look to God in that circumstance, and not a heart of discontentment that says, I refuse to find joy here. 
This might be a paradigm shift. This might be a paradigm shift for many of us, not recognizing that we were even doing this. Think about Naomi in the book of Ruth. Her anger was not just some vague anger. You know, she had lost her husband and she lost her two sons and she had a legitimate reason to grieve being in a fallen world and yet how does she respond she says look don't even call me Naomi anymore call me Mara call me bitter because God's hand has been against me she responded the whole story is dealing with with her and and helping her see that God is a God who is who is a provider who's a redeemer here's the second thing I want you to think about about complaining. Complaining is an attack on God's ability. It's an attack on God's ability. You come here to chapter 15, and you look at these, these, these uh, verses 22 through 27, and you can imagine the, the progression here and feel some empathy for the people of Israel. It wasn't like they were just whining because they didn't have their their favorite type of coffee or something. I mean, this is a, le- a legitimate thing to be concerned about. They leave the area where they were at, and they begin to travel. And remember, there's hundreds of thousands of people, like 600,000 men plus women and children, and they're traveling. And a day goes by, and they don't have anything to drink. They, don't have, they have some provisions, perhaps, but they don't find any additional water. A little concerned about that. Then you imagine the morning of the second day, hundreds of thousands of people are traveling, and so maybe you're kind of toward the back, and you start hearing reports, and you kind of look over. Okay, we're about to kind of come around this next turn, and maybe we're going to see water then. And then you know, a couple hours go by, and now you're at this new place. You got to turn and see this new land, and still nothing. And then the, you know, the, the whole day goes by, and then the morning of the, the third day, and just every hour you keep hoping that you'll hear reports of water found, and Every hour, you imagine the frustration is building and finally you hear that water has been found and then the report comes, but it's bitter, we can't even drink it. You can imagine the frustration at that circumstance. And if there was ever a time where it might be appropriate to kind of express your disapproval uh, and your, your heart of discontentment, maybe this would be it, but it's not. It is a sinful response, even in this circumstance, to, to turn against God, to have a heart of complaint that refuses to look to him for provision, to find joy. Why? Because it's an attack on his ability. The people grumbled against Moses, verse 24, and said, what shall we drink? And the Lord makes the statute and rules, and it says he tested them, and the the focus is to cause them to look to him for provision. Here's a really important question, I think, to ask yourself when you find yourself in a circumstance that's not to your liking. Here's a very important question. Ask yourself, does God have the ability to change this circumstance? So here I am, I'm in this situation, and maybe my my pay isn't what I would desire my pay to be, my my performance review comes back and it's it's negative, or or maybe I'm in a a health situation, or, or maybe I'm in a situation with a loved one, I ask myself the question, does God have the ability to to change this circumstance? Can he do it? And if the answer is yes, what does that mean? 
It means that for some reason he has decided not to change that circumstance. For some reason he has said, this is where I'm going to be. And now my task is not to grumble against the story that he has written for me, but to figure out what is it that you want me to learn in this circumstance by which I can glorify your name more effectively. And I say that knowing that that is an incredibly challenging thing to say. Does God have the ability, the power to change the circumstance? And if not, if so, does he have the ability to give me joy in this circumstance? And the answer, of course, is yes. Here's a third statement to think about. Complaining is an attack on God's goodness. Complaining is an attack on God's goodness. There's so much we could, could do here with uh, chapter 16. Here's the main point. The main point is about God's provision and the need to trust him again, right? And that he's a, a good God. Look, look at your text, and notice kind of the, the first eight verses or so. They, they travel again, and they, they come, and it says that they, in, in verse 2, they were, at the end of chapter 15, grumbling against water. Now they're grumbling about food. And it says they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and there is a, a statement they make that they're going to make multiple times in the future. I wish we died already. It would have been better. It would have been better to die by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And then there's some very selective memories they have here. We used to sit by meat pots, big things full of meat, and we ate all the bread we could have wanted. But instead, Moses, and notice here, there's an attack on his motives. Not his ability, but even his, his motives. You brought us out here for what purpose? To kill all of us with hunger. Now, perhaps if they had been thinking rationally, we'll talk more about this later, if they had been thinking rationally, they would have been careful about slandering Moses, but they're hungry, they're concerned, so they, they grumble and they, they attack Moses' motives. Not just his decision-making, but his motives. And then you see, you know, continue to grumble, 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 as Moses describes what they're doing in these next few verses, and he lets them know this, this great theological truth. We've already talked about it. Who are we? Your grumbling, verse 8, is not against us, but against the Lord. And then he talks about God's provision. And the purpose of God's provision here is to cause them to reorient their focus and, and to consider God and, and not themselves. It says, Look, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling, verse 9, and there's this, this graciousness to God's provision. I have heard the grumbling of the people, verse 12, of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And as we see the continued story, as we, as we see the story unfold, what we see again and again is continued demonstration that the people of Israel don't tr quite trust God's goodness. So, in the evening, they're supposed to, to eat everything and then kind of uh, be, be prepared to trust God the next morning, but they don't. They, they keep it, and they're saying, well, maybe God won't be good and provide tomorrow. Or on the Sabbath, they don't trust God to provide enough on the sixth day, or they don't trust God's 
goodness in, this, in circumstance after circumstance. And over and over again, the, the people of Israel have to recognize that, that God is going to provide. And even that word manna means, means kind of what is it? It kind of sounds like that. And, and it's this, this uh, perhaps crisp-like like substance that tastes sweet. And God provides it. God provides it. We'll talk more about that. But, but here's, here's what I want you to see. This heart of unbelief believes that God's instructions, be it about what together, when together, be it about the, the Sabbath, this heart of unbelief that manifests itself in complaining believes that these instructions are not coming from a God who is good, but, but from a God who is not trustworthy. What does this look like in our hearts? How can I tell whether or not my heart is simply recognizing that a situation is, is bad or whether my heart is, is discontent? How, how can I tell those, the, the difference between those two things? How can I tell if I'm just saying, you know what, I wish this, this circumstance were different? And, and when, when is it, not only do I just wish it was different, I'm, I'm, I'm discontent. Here, here are a couple of fruits of a heart that is discontent, of a complaining heart. Here are a couple of fruits. One, one fruit is fear. One fruit of a complaining heart is fear. Some of these come from, by the way, uh, Joe Stoll, as he writes on this passage in Numbers 14. So this passage in Numbers 14 are the two passages that have the word grumble occur more than once in the Old Testament. So in other words, both those passages are about grumbling or complaining. One of the fruits of grumbling, murmuring, complaining is, is fear. You think about the Numbers 14 where the, the 12 spies come back and 10 of the spies give a negative report and the people grumble. And, and the, the reason that they're grumbling is they're, they're afraid. Instead of trusting God, they're, they're afraid. They don't believe in God's potential. Another fruit of a heart of, of unbelief is, is gossip and slander of others. When a person is complaining, what happens? It's, it's done in the context of a, of a bad report. And the person who is a, a person who complains, often that heart of discontentment manifests itself in, in gossip or slander. In fact, the person who complains sometimes loves to hear bad news so they can go and tell other people about it. Let me tell you about our boss. Let me tell you about what dumb move our boss made again. Let me tell you about my mom. My mom is wonderful, by the way. She's probably listening to this on in her car. Wonderful mom. Let me tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about so-and-so. Let me tell you about what stupid things so-and-so did again. The person who is a complainer loves to, to gossip, and it manifests itself in, in not just saying not just, not just recognizing mistakes that people make or not just recognizing that something's a bad situation, but, but loving to, to tear down another person. That's the heart of a discontented person. They love, they love bad news. They love to slander. They love to complain. In fact, the, the complainer creates an environment in which grumbling can, can thrive. It becomes a, a toxic environment when you're around or are a person Who's a complainer. A complainer, because of that, also another fruit of that heart is, is 
Just bad judgment. Bad judgment. When you are a complainer, and instead of looking to God and finding joy, you look to yourself and find lack, you begin to make decisions that are very self-centered and are not very wise. They're not very well thought out. They're not in accordance with reality. You're, you're deceived. So here are the Israelites. Uh, what's their plan? You know what we should do? I got an idea. Let's stone Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. Yeah, that's a great idea. What's happening? It's the heart of a complainer. They're not rightly recognizing where God has placed them. They're discontent, and so they begin to make some bad decisions about how they can change their circumstances. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and me. The fruit of complaining in our heart can often be bad judgment. We're discontent with where God is, and so we begin to make some very foolish decisions about how to get where we think we should be. It's very dangerous to be a complainer. Self-pity is a fruit of complaint. My life is so unfair. It's so, it's so wrong that this is happening to me. It's just not right that the weather isn't how I think the weather should be. It's just not right that, that I live in a country that has a, 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 a senator like this or a governor like that or a president like this or a congressman like this. It's not fair that I live in a state with such corruption or a city with such whatever. The murmurs feel sorry for themselves and they focus on how they've been mistreated, how they've been misused, how they've been let down. Self-pity. And all of us struggle with this, right? Another fruit, another fruit of complaining is rebellion. Rebellion. This kind of encapsulates all the other things we're saying, right? I'm in this situation. I don't like it. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to rebel. Because I'm dissatisfied. Well, here's, here's the fourth thing I want you to think about. Complaining is an attack. Complaining is an attack on God's complete provision in Jesus Christ for all of our needs. Complaining is an attack on God's complete provision in Jesus Christ for all of our needs. And, and this is why I'm saying, as you and I talk about complaining, we're not just saying, hey, let's be moralistic and be nice people to each other. No, this is a gospel issue. Here in chapter 17, something interesting happens. We've read part of it already, but I hope you noticed the interesting thing that happens. In chapter 15, God put the people to the test. In chapter 16, God put the people to the test. In chapter 17, Moses says, you're testing the Lord, verse 2. And it says in verse 7, the name, the place, testing or quarreling, because the people of Israel test the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, was the Lord among us? If you look in verse 6, it says, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. In other words, as you're striking the rock, who else are you, in a sense, striking? If God's there in front of the rock, and you're striking the rock with that staff, who else is being struck? God himself, right? And that's where the water comes from. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 10 if you can. 1 Corinthians 10, this is 
Paul kind of helping us understand the spiritual nature of what's happening here. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud, all passed through the sea. So this is talking about what we just talked about. That's happened. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock, who was that rock that was struck? It was Christ. In other words, this, this picture of Moses striking the rock and, and physical sustenance coming from this rock that's a, that's a picture of Jesus who was struck for us, from whom we receive all spiritual water. Who is Jesus? Who does the gospel tell us that Jesus is? He's the bread from heaven. He's the provision of manna. He's the water that comes from the rock. And, and, and Moses, Moses as, he, as he turns the people toward, toward God, he's turning them to say, hey, look, all your provision is found in God. And whenever people attack Moses and they grumble about their circumstances, they're saying God is insufficient. The manna isn't enough. The water isn't enough. God's provision is not enough. His joy, we cannot find complete satisfaction in him. And it says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says, we must not put Christ to the test. Remember it says they put the people put God to the test. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did. Brothers and sisters, this is a gospel issue. And some of us maybe have just totally been unaware of it. I can remember one time when I was in, I was in third grade, and if you know me very well, uh, you, know, uh, <laughs> you know that I am what some people call a picky eater, okay? I'm not very proud to say that, but it's true. I get made fun of quite a bit. But I can remember being in third grade, and, and uh, we went to the, our third grade class went to this, this Chinese restaurant, and they provided us this, this wonderful meal, and as a third grader, me and my friend just kind of made fun of the whole thing. And I can remember my teacher pulling me aside after the meal. Again, remember, I've, made, I've just made jokes this entire time about how terrible Chinese food is. I can remember my third grade teacher pulling me aside after the meal and saying, you know that one of the students' parents paid for this entire meal. And you've just really shown an incredible lack of gratitude toward this, this person who sacrificially provided this meal. And I can remember just, just feeling such a shame just wash over me. And all my funny jokes, instead of seeming so hilarious as they had to me just a moment ago, now seem like just the, the worst possible things I could have been saying. Now maybe, maybe that's how it is for you and I as well. As we think about the gospel, when we think about God's complete provision in Jesus Christ, what seems like innocent complaining, what seems like just innocent observations, we suddenly realize in light of the cross, in the light of God's complete provision in the son, his son Jesus Christ, they're not just innocent statements. They're attacks on the gospel and on God's complete provision in Christ. But here's the beautiful thing. Even those statements are covered in the cross, right? <laughs> and we 
And what do we do when we find we've, we've sinned? We don't look to self and find lack and complain. What do we do? We look to God in our sin. Find joy. Respond in worship. We need to hear it. We need to train our ears to, to hear our words as God hears them, as, as, as means by which we worship God and see the value of his son, Jesus. Complaining is an attack on the gospel message because we're saying Jesus is not sufficient for our provision and joy, but by the grace of the gospel message, we can come to God and say, you are sufficient for all things. I'm turning to you I'm finding my joy. I'm worshiping. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and for his complete total provision. We respond this morning by recognizing our our sinful response and desiring to respond rightly to you, to, to recognizing that you are all things. And we confess, I confess this morning, my my inability to to keep my tongue from complaining in and of myself. Father, Change me, change us by your grace. Help our our mouths to be instruments of, of praise and worship to you. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.